At the end of January, the book still unfinished, the lease on our furnished flat was due to expire, and Carol was about to start another full-time job. The thought of house hunting in the midst of book writing and full baby duties paralysed me. But, in a wonderful play of irony and serendipity, a young woman I had met through the local baby health centre, years younger than me, but nevertheless worn out by caring for a sleepless baby with no family support, had decided to return to her native South Africa with her Australian partner. Their beautiful two-room flat with a study in St Kilda was soon to be vacant. I rushed around to the estate agents as fast as my little feet could carry me. By early February, I was standing in the lounge room of the new flat. Casper was crying, and he still wasn't sleeping at night, so my left eyelid was still closing of its own accord. I still had what is known as a diminished milk supply. The book was still unfinished, and there were 38 large boxes, 12 small boxes, and several large containers of paintings and prints to unpack. I wondered if there was some way I could shut my eyes and vanish. Amazingly, I finished the book. I jumped up from my chair and did a small dance of joy around the room, feeling a great rush of release. I ran downstairs and scooped Casper up from the rug, swinging him around in my arms in the lounge room. According to every sleep scientist of the late 20th century, when Casper entered his sixth month of life, he had magically reached the psychological stage when he could be taught to sleep through the night. He was going to learn how to go to sleep without a dummy in his mouth, without being rocked into his dreams, without his mother or his father standing fixed by his side, immutable as the stars. According to the books, by the second or third night, your baby will have taught himself how to sleep through the night. Certainly there will be some crying, perhaps two or three hours of crying, perhaps even a vomit or two. Caspar survived his ordeal, without becoming autistic or even emotionally scarred, as far as I could tell. And after two nights he started sleeping peacefully all night. I felt as if the whole world had turned happy. It seemed to me that my energy returned. Each day assumed a satisfyingly calm and predictable shape, with clear blocks of time when Casper slept, when he played in the autumn sun on the floor, when Les and I dared to consider our future. In the warm autumn days, we explored Melbourne's parks, and Les and I began to think about the possibility of buying a house. We were both nearing 40, and we had lived until now impulsive, peripatetic lives. In the warm autumn days, Les and I talked about our lives, about whether having children was essentially a conservative act. Certainly, having children most often means you are obliged to stay in one place, to establish some kind of solid edifice from where a child ventures forth. Here's what I think. Until you have children, you can often exist without having to act on your deepest beliefs. Once you have children, all your most hidden rules rise to the surface like cream. You will know, if you cannot bear to let your child's head go unbaptized, that you have not abandoned your faith as completely as you once thought. You will know if you cannot send your child to the rough local school and wish him to go to the same private school you once loathed, that you are more bourgeois than you ever suspected. 
Having children exposes you. I will know who you are when I see how you wish your children to live. Les and I were beginning to understand the enormity of our position, to feel the wind of exposure. The three of us dwelt like fruits on the same stem. We slept, ate together, bathed together, began to slowly form ourselves into a new shoot of the family tree. That is, after eight months of daily life together, we were finally getting used to each other. Then, just days after Casper started to crawl, I peed into a glass jar and placed a pregnancy testing wand in it. I was pregnant again, just when I had begun to see the light. The first thing I thought of after the shock was what was going to happen to the fistula. From the first, this new pregnancy went badly. I felt sick all the time. I could hardly move from the bed or the chair, and only the need of a toilet bowl in which to vomit propelled me into action. It seemed to me that I had only recently grown used to managing one child and would find myself completely incapable of managing two. Two children was beginning to look suspiciously like a proper family. I didn't know whether I could see myself in this picture. At 11 weeks, I had an ultrasound. He was alive all right, a pulsing, flailing creature represented on a screen above my head. Look, Cappy, there's a bubba, I said to Caspar, who was also in the room. As soon as I could, I made an appointment to see the obstetrician I had already consulted about the fistula. We still had no private medical insurance, but I wondered how much it was going to cost if she delivered me privately. Well, dear, firstly, I don't take on uninsured patients. I can give you the names of a couple of people who do, though, she said. I knew she was also a consultant at one of Melbourne's better public maternity hospitals, and I asked for her opinion on registering there as a public patient. Certainly you would be in good hands, she said, but I think the more important question is how you should be delivered. My advice is that you've already suffered enough trauma to the vaginal area and should have a caesarean section. But you won't do it personally? My secretary will give you the names and addresses of some very good obstetricians who will. The consultation was clearly over. Don't worry, dear. You can have the fistula repaired at a later date, she said at the door. I left, beginning my search for a good pair of hands. What if I had handsomely paid a doctor to deliver me by caesarean section? What if I had insisted on nothing but the knife on my stomach? Would the earlier knife have prevented the later knife from slicing open my gut and pulling up a bright, slippery loop of bowel to the surface? What if? What if? What if? I registered as a public patient, basing my decision on the fact that the hospital had the very same doctors working as consultants whom I would be paying as a private patient. I had access to them all in one of the city's best teaching hospitals, and besides, we didn't have a lot of money to spare. The first doctor I saw did the usual checks and asked me details about the first delivery and the fistula. After he examined me, I dressed and sat down opposite him. I can't see any reason why I shouldn't deliver vaginally, he said. I looked at him. But the specialist I saw advised a Caesar. She said there was already too much trauma to that area. The doctor smelt strongly of tobacco. 
Well, yes, that's one opinion. I just think that a Caesar's unnecessary. There's really no obstetric reason for one. I was tired, confused. Thanks, I'll have to think about it. Outside in the lobby, I tried to gather my thoughts. After a while, I joined the appointments queue. When I finally reached the woman at the desk, I handed her my appointment card. I'd like to request another doctor, please. I want a second opinion. Can I see the head of the clinic at my next appointment? She looked at the computer screen. 9.30 or 9.45, that's all I've got left for the Wednesday clinic. 9.45 will be fine, I said. My belly grew quickly, and by my fourth month, I looked ready to deliver. The bones of my face lurked somewhere in the flesh, a memory only. Les felt weighed down too, by the idea of another child, by the feeling of lack of movement in his life. We began to talk seriously again about buying a house, but both of us felt filled by the idea of permanent exile in suburbia. As winter approached, we started to look at property. We didn't look at houses, though. We looked at warehouses, units with rooftop gardens, anything which did not have a fence to suggest we had fenced ourselves in. One Saturday, Liz rang me from a phone booth. I could tell at once he was excited. Where is it? I asked, and we made arrangements to meet. The warehouse had once been a theatre, but no one knew if there was a ghost. It had soaring ceilings, two bathrooms, and, best of all, an outside terrace for children. In Sydney, it would have cost half a million, but in Melbourne it cost less than half that. It was more than we wanted to pay, but Liz was in love. Only weeks after we moved in, we went up to Queensland on an extended trip, combining both work and a holiday we had pre-arranged months before. My novel was finally being published, and I had to do media interviews and to take part in the Brisbane Writers' Festival. Casper and I flew up to Queensland ahead of Liz, joining my parents at a holiday house on Bribey Island. Casper had been standing on his own for a few weeks now, an expression of pleasure on his little Les face. He was generally pleased with himself all round. He especially loved each set of grandparents and all his cousins, and when I watched them playing together, I knew we had made the right decision in coming back to Australia. I was very excited on the afternoon Les arrived and ran straight out to the hire car when I saw him pull up. Casper was in my arms. It's Dada, I said, bending forward so Les could give him a kiss. I felt a gush of blood between my legs as I moved, and my eyes must have registered something. What's wrong? said Les. I'm bleeding. Within ten minutes, we were all in the hire car on the way to the local hospital on the mainland. I cried all the way, certain that I had lost the baby. I was huge. I was 21 weeks, well out of the first trimester when most miscarriages occur. I wondered if I would have to deliver a dead baby. In the emergency room, I was examined, given an ultrasound, a pad on which to bleed, and told that the placenta appeared to be attached to the front of the uterine wall. If I kept the baby for the next couple of hours, everything would probably be all right. Chances were high, though, that I would go into premature labour. The baby was not mature enough to survive. I lay awake all night, suddenly desperate to see my baby's face. The next morning, the doctor came to examine me. As I sat up in bed, the baby gave a hearty kick. I'm still spotting, I said, but the baby's moving. He placed one of those hearing things to my stomach, and the baby's heartbeat could be heard, loud, regular, 
strong. Sounds pretty good to me, he said. If you don't get any more bleeding, I wouldn't be too worried. See your doctor when you get back to Melbourne. One afternoon during that extended stay in the sun, Casper had his last breastfeed. Ever since I'd fallen pregnant, my milk supply had tapered off, and now he was only having one feed a day. I remember exactly what that last feed was like. I was feeding him on a bed under a window. He looked up at me, smiling, and then he gave me a great whopping bite. Ow! I said, pulling away. He was laughing like anything. Okay, you win, I said. I grabbed him, giving him a tickle, and any grief about the loss of one particular closeness was submerged in laughter. While we were still in Brisbane, Casper had his first birthday. A few days before his birthday, he walked up the hallway by himself. He was resting against the wall most of the way, but, nevertheless, he was propelling himself on his own two legs. He was one year old, born to the air for 365 days. He was himself alone, standing on his own two legs, the recipient of my donated sleep, my anger, frustration and love. He was my benefactor of happiness.' 